My name is Jim Pugh, and um, I am a musician. I play piano and organ. I'm a producer. I'm a songwriter. I'm also the executive director of a nonprofit record company called Little Village, which formerly we call Little Village Foundation. And you're listening to Talking Blues. So we we met, uh, I think, in May of 2018, which is four years ago, and the world has changed quite a bit. Uh, you were kind enough to join Curtis Salgado in an interview I was doing in Memphis, and we talked a little bit about your your beginnings as a musician, and also about your time being in a house band and how um, that wound up getting you other gigs. But I'm interested in finding out you're from Chicago. Tell me about how you first got into music. I'm, I make it clear that uh, I'm um, from near Chicago. I'm not. I'm in pro, seven miles outside. Which, if you know Chicago, it actually makes a difference. Um, I'm from uh, the North Shore, Winnetka, actually, and um, uh, I grew up with an older brother and older sisters, um, and that's significant in that I'm. I was 12 years old in 1966, I guess that's right, yeah. So, I mean, when I start, when the blues scare of the late 50s and early 60s started, which came out of the folk revival, it's, you know, um, that me and my friends all had, you know, brothers and sisters that went to places like the University of Chicago or NYU, or places in large where, you know, I, at a very early age, I was listening to um, Paul Butterfield. Um, and from that, and I think from the Rolling, listening to Rolling Stones records, somebody figured out early on that the music came from someplace close by originally, you know. Um, somebody's brother might have pointed it out. And then, and, and at that time, uh, even uh, fifth grade, I was taking piano lessons and, and, and very soon uh, along there, I wanted to play piano like Otis Spann. And, and, uh, and, you and know, piano lessons would have been classical music? Yeah, and that was all sort of seen as, I mean, I think it, it was a relatively benevolent thing, but they thought that I was nuts. Um, uh, you know, there was, it's hard to explain the the fad that went on with music that people were such, so crazy about the British invasion. We sort of were that way about, at a really young age, we were really like the, that, the, the, the Paul Butterfield record cover that has them all standing, leaning against an incense shop and, and Sam Lay with his hair and Alvin Bish. I mean, we all sort of, on one way or another, kind of intentionally, unintentionally started to sort of affectate that whole thing. Which years later, when I worked with some of those people, Elvin in particular, to this day is still intimidating to me because he was he was such an idol to me and my friends. It was like baseball cards or baseball players. You know, we just thought they were the coolest thing in the world. Um, and from that, we sort of started to go around and see, you know, Muddy Waters and Howlin' Wolf and other people that we used to get in the, there's a newspaper, I think it still exists, called Blues Unlimited that came from, it was a British magazine. It was a foldover like newspaper and somebody had a subscription to it. And the British being the fans that they are, they would actually list who was playing in Chicago, you know, at Turner's Lounge. And it was like, you couldn't get that in a Chicago newspaper. By the time they printed started printing that kind of stuff in Chicago newspapers. All the blues musicians for the most part were dead. So, but at that time you still could. And we, we sort of vaguely tried to sneak in, you know, those, and, and I, I found out later that my mother did the same thing in the thirties in Chicago. <laughs> There's nothing new. Everybody's sort of trying to, you know, it's an appreciation of, of African, African American culture that, that, uh, you know, us white suburbanites embraced. Do you remember seeing that blues performance the f first time you might have seen it in person and what impact that might have had compared to the music you were listening to um, on an album? 
I saw B.B. King. I saw Paul Butterfield um, when I was still in junior high school. Um, and I saw, I saw Otis Rush, I think, when I was in eighth grade. Otis Rush was, at the time, I thought he sort of had this kind of a combination. He was sort of what I considered to be West Side. That, and, and I never saw Magic Sam. But, well, the other thing is, too, that I should say was that then it was a big factor was we used to take the subway, take the L and go to 7 West Grand to Jazz Record Mart. And we bought records from from Bob Kester. And he was very nice. And we were really just young and dumb. And uh <laughs> And and really, you know, it was precocious because it was it wasn't just being in high school. We were really in grade school, and uh, and we just loved it, and we loved the the whole thing. And it was a it was a vibrant time. I went to the first Chicago Blues Festival, which was in '69, at Grant Park. That had it started with Victoria Spivey and went through Coco Taylor and it started at 11 o'clock in the morning and, and it went to eight o'clock at night. And there was everybody in Chicago. There wasn't that many. Um, it was real Chicago blues for the most part. There wasn't, you know, there wasn't BB King or Bobby Bland or people like that. That kind of came later, but it really was all of those people. I saw Sonny Land Slim, I saw uh, that guy. Who's the guy? Johnny Young. I saw Johnny Shines. I saw Muddy Waters. Uh, I saw Big Joe Williams. Were you drawn more towards the keyboard players, or not necessarily? There weren't really that many. There were. No, Oda, I saw Otis Spann. He performed, but he was no longer with Muddy Waters in '69. He was playing with his wife, with Lucille. Um, yeah, there were. You know, interestingly enough, I mean, a few years later, I saw. Um, B.B. King, uh, it wasn't the first time, but the second or third time around then, um, uh, the keyboard player with B.B. King was Ron Levy. And and um, I really thought he was spectacular. I mean, I thought, and, and, and really given the circumstances, I was pretty much at that point listening to African-American music and I didn't really think that, I thought the real source of it was people who were African-American and, and he, I thought really somehow um, was convincing to me that he could play the idiom in, in a way that I liked. Um, I don't know about the rest of his career, but certainly then it really was great. And B.B. King was great and he worked with them at a time. I mean, I don't think enough recognition's given to him for what, he did at that time because he was great. He was great. Um, so, did you did you ever come close to becoming Otis Spann? Well, and there are people that would definitely argue with that, but with me. But as far as I'm concerned, let's put it this way: the way that I hear it is the way that I play it. And there are probably a people that do it. Well, I've known people that do it better, but not many. I know people that get record, you know, I have a little, I don't have an ego that much about <laughs> playing the piano or the organ. But when it comes to Otis Spann, I play it. And I might've played it better when I was 16 than I do now, because it's, it's hard not to sneak something in there to fall out of style. But yeah, I mean, you know, I think so. I made plenty of records trying to play like him, that's for sure. I wasn't trying to play like him, but I mean, it, it's the influence. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, I put them, put him up on a pedestal, and I just think he's just so amazing. Yeah, no, he was, he was. And it's much different than, you know, in Chicago blues, as you get into it, you know, you it's different than New Orleans, it's different than New York, it's different than San Francisco, you know, and and the way that he played was even different than people in Chicago. Um, and, you know, there are a lot of people that confuse it for different, something else other than, a lot of these guys are playing Jerry Lee Lewis and they think it's Otis Spam. So mm -hmm. it's all... It's all a matter of opinion. And then there are people that I hear now, Bob Welsh that plays with Elvin now. So he plays guitar and piano and he plays really great piano. There was a, a woman 
who played with Downchild Blues Band. Are you familiar with them? Yes. Jane yeah. Vasey. Jane. She yeah. was, she was, I saw her once in Vancouver when I was in my early twenties and I went, that's the way, you know, when you hear it, you go, yeah, that's it. That's it. She played. <laughs> yeah. yeah. She was something special. Um, you moved out West to go to, attend university. Yeah. What were you going to university for? I um, lied my way into music school. I, uh, I took a reel-to-reel -reel tape because they said, well, if you can't come for an audition, send us a tape. So I took like a, a Mozart piano sonata and I mean a Mozart. Yeah, it was a piano sonata. And I uh, chopped it because I couldn't play more than about eight bars without making a mistake. Anyway, I lied my way in there. And then the first day I was there, they said, OK, now play what you played on your audition tape. <laughs> It was humbling. Um, and I stayed for about three or four months. And then I moved to San Francisco and went to, uh, lived on, you know, in the Fillmore district and, and found plenty of work trying to, uh, and I started, and I had started playing B3. I was also at the same time playing Mexican music, which really was, has remained a real love of mine. Um, dances and quinceañeras and all kinds of events. I played down in Salinas, I remember playing um, for the the lettuce strike um, or the grape strike, I guess it was there. Um, so anyway, there was a lot of different circumstances of music that I played. And at that time, I really got in the early 70s in San Francisco, I was really interested in Tower Power and Sly and the Family Stone. And that kind of influenced me. I mean, I play in clubs or I played in bars, I would play kind of blues, I played Oregon, you know, Jimmy Jack McDuff, or you played whatever was on the radio. I used to tell people a stack of dimes in a jukebox. I went to the University of Fillmore Street, but it was true because <laughs> I would, that's how I learned what, how to play whatever I was playing. And, uh, and you know, shortly after that, I got it in, oh, I was like 22. I was in a band that had a record deal that was made up of people from Sly and the Family Stone and cold blood this is rubicon yeah and uh from that um you know i uh i never really played um became sort of a, a wedding musician or a top 40 musician i did it for about six months and then after that i was always in bands that did pretty much primarily original music or i did some a couple of big dance band things with girls with tall hair that would sing like the Supremes. I like that. But I mean, in terms of real current kind of stuff, I was always sort of locked between 1950 and 1970 in terms of my musical taste. When when did you know that you wanted to be a professional musician? <sighs> really young, really young. Um, I mean, I remember my parents took me to a Blackhawks game on a Sunday afternoon and I promptly, and I did this kind of on a regular basis when I was really young, I got lost and ended up, the police found me in the front row of a storefront church on West Madison. Um, <laughs> much of the parents were horrified. Um, but, and I've heard that the, sometimes it influences can be planted that early. Um, but, you know, when I, there's the typical reasons for why people become musicians. And, and I think one of them is you find something that you can, you enjoy doing that you do well, or people think you do it well and you get satisfaction from it. Um, I mean, God knows the circumstance that I grew up in, if I, I should have gotten, you know, gotten an NBA and ridden the Northwestern train to work with a, Ham sandwich in my in my briefcase. <laughs> you know, that's what was supposed to happen. I fucked that up. So, but I couldn't do it. I mean, I was I was I wasn't I was way too. I was either pre preoccupied with other things or too dumb. It was one of the two, probably both. <laughs> so, but I read somewhere that when you when you dropped out of school, your parents said, "Well, stay out there till your money runs out, and then come home and." We'll talk, we'll talk about what you're going to do next. Yeah, no, that's true. That's it, totally true. It was sort of like, and they were sort of nice about it. And I just went, nah. I, and I mean, I, I definitely put myself in lots of musical situations where 
uh, it was just fearless. I just flung my, for a while I did, I played for African-American dance and they were African, no, they were African dance classes for the city of Oakland. I did that for almost, almost a year. I would play for dance classes where they were, you know, I go into these housing projects and they were expecting somebody to play African drum, you know, I play Kungos and I'd show up and play Otis Span and they go, Oh, well, you know, so, <laughs> this is, you know, this is in Oakland during the time of the black Panthers, they looked at me like, who is this idiot? <laughs> you know, but anyway, I, I wonder about the dance because this is a, when I did research on you, dance comes up, quite a bit in your junior year you joined the dance committee you you're obviously in a dance yeah, band I've, and i think even today i mean i think dance is kind of part of your life I, I don't know if you dance or not but the kind of music that you you might um no, sponsor or record seems to have some dance elements to it is no, that correct Uncle, that's about as good a question as anybody's asking you're right no it, it totally is I mean, I definitely am a victim of, you know, um, if I have to learn a piece of music, the people in the band go like, you know, that's a nice piece of music, Jim, but that's not the way it goes. And I go, I was too busy dancing, <laughs> which is true. <laughs> if I have to learn mother popcorn, you know, it's it's hard to sit still. So, yeah, you know, it's definitely I I, I love the, the the dance part of it. And I've had some really seriously interesting experiences that involve dance um, and usually alcohol. But I mean, recently, you know, I played at a blues festival in Portmont, the Waterfront Blues Festival, and there was Maceo Parker played. <laughs> and I was some, with some friends and I just, we just danced all night. And then I went back to my room and played on my computer, played James Brown records until the front desk came. Knock it off. I went, it's like, you know, I'm a slave to rhythm. What, what, what can I say? It's, I'm a slave to rhythm. <laughs> well, it has served you well. I guess. I, and I, I wonder, um, did you know what it was that you wanted to do? Like as a musician? Did you have goals? Did you have plans? You know, I've heard other people say the exact same thing. I didn't really want to sing. I just wanted to play. I wanted to be a member of a band and write songs and make records. That's really all I just wanted to play. You know, and I wanted to be part of something. I never was driven to make a lot of money. Um, and that's probably, well, in my old age is a regret. But, you know, I uh, I could have been more serious about that aspect of the business part of music. But I just, I was, I'm, I like the social aspect of it. I love meeting people. I love being in circumstances that are not like suburban Chicago. And I've been in lots and lots you know, and actually years later, traveling with Etta and traveling with Cray, I've gone all over the world several times and been in lots of circumstances that I really, you know, treasure um, in lieu of money and fame and fortune. I will take the experiences of being lost in foreign countries and figuring stuff out. I love that. And the music, too. I really, you know, I mean, I think that I have, as it relates to Little Village and even when you were talking about, um, you know, my parents said, you know, you figure out what you're going to do. And when you run out of money, we'll figure out what you're going to do. And what I did was I just learned how to play in every kind of musical circumstance. And it was, I was comfortable in that. I was comfortable being um, in different circumstances, unlike my own. And I enjoyed it. I really, and to this day, it's a lot of little village uh, is, being in and there's lots of stories and some of them I tell but, um, uh, of that kind of thing uh, it's just really and it goes hand in hand with the culture the food but anyway it, it is this I think this this idea that if you play a bunch of different styles of music and all I'm doing is playing some kind of rehash Otis Span um, you can play Montunos you know playing Otis Span but anyway so in doing that, I, I've, you know, it, it, it does help kind of inform and have the empathy of circumstances that are different than my own. But you did play, as you said, with Etta and Robert Cray, Alvin Bishop, tons of people who, who are at the higher end of the blues world. 
Sure. In terms of success, the fact that you could travel around the world many times with these people and also play with such talent, it's, it's a pretty impressive resume. It is, but it's a parlor trick. I mean, it's not, I mean, to be able to sing like Robert Cray, you know, or um, at a, to be able to sing like that, you can't, you know, to sing like Elvin. Now I could do that. No. <laughs> it's just a joke. <laughs> Best time I ever had, there was only two of us. Um, <laughs> but anyway, you know, it, it is, it, it is, it's possible to, I suppose, you know, yeah, there's talent involved in it, but you could figure it out. Uh, it'd be kind of sharp, but. I mean, there are people. There are people who make a really, really good living playing music that aren't necessarily great musicians. Virtuosity has nothing to do with it. You know, right. it's being able to. Uh, you know, you do a gig like I did for twenty five years. I know how to get along with people. I know how to get along with people that hate my guts. I know how to get along with people that hate my guts. I mean, you have to know. You know what I mean? I mean, yeah, yeah. over a period of time, they all get sick of each other. So it's 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 understandable. But that's a big part of it. Um, but that's like a, I mean, 25 years with anybody is a long time. Oh, yeah. And yeah. to be able to sustain at that level of a Robert Cray band, you know, I mean, that's that's pretty impressive. The the length of it is, yeah. I mean, what it takes to do, I mean, having to being, you know, having that longevity is actually more impressive than the talent that it takes to do the gig. So, yeah. What, what, what did you learn from that, that experience of working with Robert for 25 years? Oh, I can't, it's impossible to list all the things that I learned. I mean, I mean, some of the things I knew I had experience with before I got there. Um, but, um, you know, certainly travel um how to eat lunch in paris without getting a without being offended by being insulted <laughs> that was a real metric you know but i mean like that or you know it, it's the same thing in, in in other cultures really in 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 asia and stuff like that or just you know because you spend a lot of time by yourself a lot of times when you travel even with a group of people, after you know a year or two, you just go. I'm not going to eat that lunch with you. I'm not going to eat dinner. I don't want to see you. You know, I started riding a bicycle and uh, carried a bicycle with me and rode everywhere. Um, I've ridden in every state in the country and in Canada. Well, no, I haven't ridden it, but I've ridden the ones that touch the border. Um, <laughs> I haven't been to Yellowknife on a bicycle, but um, or Hudson Bay. I've never been to. Have you been to Hudson Bay? No, I haven't. I used to work for the Hudson's Bay Company, but I haven't been to Hudson Bay. That's not relative at all. <laughs> I just thought I'd slip that in. Anyway, I hope you can use some of this, but if you can't, maybe try again someday. I've got, you know, I've got five records coming out this week. And, and, right, and I do want to talk about that. But before we get to that, I'm just was saying that that's if I seem to be slightly more eccentric than usual, it's because of that. So. You're on the road, and I mean, I presume when you're working with Robert Cray, you're not just doing two months, you're doing like nine or ten months a year. Like, you're, he's, you're working pretty hard for 25 years. Well, yeah. I mean, it's if like everybody, he's cut back to one degree or another. I mean, he did even when I worked with him, but it, it was six or eight months a year. And also, I have to say, for five or six years, I'm, was, I'm friends with Chris Isaac. So I worked with Chris Isaac for like the other months. And so I was really, you know, the early, I've got four kids. My wife and I have four kids and the youngest boy, when he was four years old in preschool, they said, what does your father do? And he said, my father plays the piano at the airport because <laughs> that's all he knew. <laughs> he would drop me off at the airport, come back a month later. <laughs> <laughs> okay, <laughs> how different was it to play with Chris Isaac versus playing with Robert Cray or anybody else? Like, how different is it from one band to another? Is well, it the band, is yeah, it... the, but not so much so. But I mean, in terms of the way people, I mean, I can tell you that, and, and then both of them are extremely talented. But Robert's the kind of person that if you talk about him to him, he becomes very nervous. And it's like, why are you doing this to me? 
Whereas if you don't talk about Chris Isaac to Chris Isaac, he becomes really annoyed. So it shows you the two different sides wow. of it. Um, but it's just the, the perspective and focus that people have. And I think a bit, a lot of times to become a big star, I think you have to be willing to think about yourself and be driven in a way to attend to yourself in a way that not many people can do. It's, it takes a lot of, I don't want to think about myself that much every day. You know? Is there a difference between being in those bands and it's like, are you a sideman or are you in a band? Well, the, in either case, that's an interesting thing in the Bay Area and in other places. There was always this sort of Northern California hybrid thing that it wasn't a band and you're not an employee. It's neither a band. It's a what did Craig called it. It's a it's a democracy with a king. <laughs> you know, so that it was kind of both, you know, whereas in Los Angeles, it's much more and probably New York, I'm sure, Nashville, it's much more employer employee. This was, was much more uh, with Cray. There was, you know, I wrote songs and produced records and was involved in, in a lot of different levels. Um, and we stayed in the same hotels and rode the same bus and, you know. Um, so, I mean, there was a lot of things about it, but of course, the, the, the financially, he got all the money, um, as rightly so. Um, I'm a huge fan of Roberts. Um, and, and I'm a big fan of, of Chris Isaac, too. I shouldn't say that, make it out one way or another. Um, I'm lucky that I ended up in San Francisco, I think, playing music rather than in someplace like Los Angeles. Um, I don't know if I would have liked that. I tried off and on to do it, and it never worked. But when you're committed to both of those bands around the same time, and before that you were also working with Etta James, does it give you, like, did you ever feel like you didn't have time to do your own thing? Was there ever a need to do your own thing? Or were you happy, as you said, just recording with a band and touring? I did do my own thing, and and to a degree of what you call, you know, I would play with my friends, um, the Jimmy Pugh thing. <laughs> and it really was just a way to play uh, barroom music with friends um and there was some talk of it being more than that but i was happy to be in a band where you know i didn't have to move equipment where i could afford to buy a house where i could pay for my kids um and i was not i didn't feel i mean certainly with robert i had my hands full um with certainly writing songs and producing and it and it there was there was a a financial um, there was some, uh, you know, uh, there was something that was equal about it, that sort of leveling, you know, it was equitable to a degree, um, or at least I thought so. And so that was, I was, it was, it was great. Um, and I did a lot of work. I did a lot of work for a lot of other people. I mean, I could list all the, the different, you know, like your basic studio musician, mutt. Um, I did a lot of work for a lot of different people. Um, I stayed busy. Uh, yeah, um, when I look at your what you've been involved in over the last number of years in the All Music Guide, it's it's a pretty impressive list. Well, I have to say, I'll just so you just so you know that the list I'm sure you're looking at has been been edited because at some point I realized that if you talk about if you actually list everything you've done, only thing that shows it's it's like being good at pinball. I used to tell you, just because you're good at pinball, it just means you spend a lot of time in the wrong place and it's like and it's the same thing if you're a musician and you played with everybody it just in a way you're just an asshole i mean you know because you've done everything with every what does that mean you know so i mean i think i admire people that have done one thing forever i think that that's really admirable and then it'd be sort of being a whore you know so anyway i don't know if any of this translates but it believe me it makes sense if you have been in the middle of it <laughs> um so at one point or another, you you leave, or somehow how you you end your relationship with the Robert Cray band, and now you have to decide what you're going to do next. Which is how I believe the Little Village Foundation happened. Can you talk about that process? Yeah, I um, um, at some point Robert just sort of said, "Look, we're not going to do this anymore," and I went, "You know, okay." I had been um, for one reason or another sort of miserable for a while. Um, Certainly the reasons for playing music at 25 change by the time you're 55. Um, oh, they did for me. Um, 
So when I left, I started, I called a friend of mine and it was serendipitous. I think that's the word. But I, I told him, you know, I said, I don't want to go and get into a similar circumstance and do this. I don't know what I want to do. He said, you know, take time. He said, take your time. Well, I took my time and thought about what I really had a passion for. And Was what that I, difficult? Um, it, the, it, I, had, I spent, this is really corny stuff, but I spent, I really tried to meditate on not thinking about what could happen, the bad side. I mean, you're 60 years old, you don't have a gig, you've got a mortgage, you got kids, you got, there's all this responsibility and you don't just pick up another one right away. So I imagined what I want. And I got a job as a volunteer job uh, working in a, um, a botanic garden that's near here in the valley that's on 10 acres or something, 40. But they, and I remember they, and I would work in the mornings and there was nobody in this place. They, I think the other volunteers would come in on weekends. So it was just me. And they brought in a semi trailer full of mulch and they went in a wheelbarrow and a pitchfork and they go go ahead <laughs> and i started at one place and i you know i i think i probably when i left four or five months later i'd got it maybe half of it uh, it was all gone but i think i probably had spread half of it and it, it was and i would work for four or five months and i tried to focus on what or think about my passions. And, and then it's all I go, well, I love music. I, lo I love helping people and not in, in, I like helping some lady with her groceries in the grocery store. I don't wanna to go to work for the you know, American Cancer Society. That's great for those people, but I mean, helping people. I just like things, I like little things. So there's some music and there's helping people. And I also like diversity. I really, um, can look at my life and, and in circumstances in San Francisco and I'm sure Toronto and, and other places are fabulous places of diversity. And I like that kind of thing. I am most comfortable in that. And so I kind of came up with various ideas. And I also realized that a lot of times the music that I really have enjoyed playing or listening to in my life have been in circumstances that not of been ones. It's not been at Madison Square Garden listening to Eric Clapton. It, it could be across the street at a corner church in Oakland or on a street corner or anywhere. And, and a lot of times those two things. So I came, began to realize or really focus on the idea that just because people don't know who you are doesn't mean you're not as great as people who that are household names. And so given that, I tried to create a circumstance that would also be kind of bulletproof in terms of people being comfortable that they're not being exploited. So I came up with this idea that I would try to position myself and sell the, and I go, people that give money to the opera and to the symphony, well, why shouldn't they give it to a teenage mariachi group in the Central Valley in California? Why shouldn't they give it to a Filipino woman who sings songs in Tagalog? Uh, and, and like that, and, and blues singers. I mean, there's, there are tons and tons of examples of, of good things that have come from having done this, and also that it should be no expense to the artist and that they should get 100% of the proceeds. I like to tell people, Little Village has ever, never, actually never sold one recording. We have out over 50 recordings. We've only never sold one, not one copy, because the money goes directly from whoever sells it to whoever owns it. There's no time limit on it. They can walk away from the deal the day after they sign it. There's no constriction on it at all. They own all of it 100%. There's no in perpetuity. There's no one-year option. So all of these things are in favor of it. And when you, and then people have gone, well, you should take 10%. I said, no, we'll make, we'll get more money by saying we don't take anything. And that has proven to be true. And, and, and Did that all, surprise you? 
when you said, "Oh, here's the idea, and this is what we're going to do," you had, I would presume, you had no idea how people would react to donating to such a cause, or what kind of response you'd get from your donors, or did you? I knew that I, I knew enough about to know that the amount of money. I mean, one of the things they did. We're not making records for a million dollars. We're making records for five to ten to fifteen. I mean, it's growing a little bit, but we were making records for. I mean, that Wee Willie Walker record. If you heard that one, that first Wee Willie, Walker, that was mm. really done as a labor of love, and um, and I decided to start this record company about halfway through, and that that would be the first record, and it came together like that. And since then. That's the only record we ever did that where it was done on a completely volunteer basis, where everybody donated their service. Everybody did. Um, and soon after this is that, the, sorry, he was discovered by Rick Astor and Kid Anderson. Basically, was... that's true. Rick discovered him on the Blues Cruise. Um, and, you know, typical, they wouldn't let him sit in, and yet he could sing circles around everybody. I mean, it was a Cinderella story. Um and he was a great guy, and it was a perfect place to start for all of us because it really. Um, and we also developed this idea that as a metric, rather than going, you know, this artist is mine, and I could, and you're going to stay here until I tell you to go. We really made it where it was like, if you go somewhere else, that's really cool. You know, and that flies in the face of all record companies. You know, we don't own the publishing. I mean. I'll tell you, Chris Strakowitz from our Hooli, he said, Jim, you want the publishing. And I go, no, I don't. And he goes, you want to be small? Be small. Go ahead. You know, and that's nothing against him, but I don't want to have any ownership of anything because I can tell you nightmare stories about uh, learning the hard way in perpetuity, you know, so um and that was the sort of the, the beginning building blocks and it spread out to a lot of different things. We're doing a thing now that I, I'm really um, excited about that. Um, have you heard Nick Clark? He is, no. he's, um, he's 25 and he, he's a Latina from, from Denver. Um, he's a, a big fella and he writes and sings songs. It's totally captivating, but his whole thing is, children's music um, and not in the way that you might think like Rafi or somebody, but in a way that's not talking down to them, but there's just this magic magic. It, 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 it is special. And I, that's not my opinion. Everyone who hears him. Well, anyway, I connected him with a children's hospital in Pittsburgh and he, they, they're opening up this huge wing of music therapy and they're having him perform at it. And they think that they will have, an ongoing relationship with him and with 26 other hospitals that they're affiliated wow. with. And things like that we like, you know, I mean, it, it is, it makes me go, well, I don't need to play at Albert Hall. <laughs> this is cooler, <laughs> you know, this is, you know, and there's the mariachi that I don't know if you've read about, but that there's two girls in the mariachi that are both going to Harvard. One of them is going to graduate, uh, I think in a week or two. And that has been an amazing story to follow. And it comes directly from the what is possible with music. Um, I can't, Little Village, I'm not the one that got him into Harvard. Whew, if they saw my transcript. But <laughs> the, it, it, music informs all of that. And Little Village had its little piece of helping it. And it is one more great story for us to collect and have. But going back to that original idea and going to donors and saying, this is my idea. Were you surprised by how people responded? Um, yeah, I mean, initially, um, you know, there were things that happened where it was unbelievably lucky, where someone said, look, I've got to get rid of this money today. And and in this foundation, and I'm going to give it to you. That happened once and that. I actually used that money for three years. I didn't take a salary for the first four years. And I didn't, I really um, was very judicious in spending, which is not my way, and spending money and trying to make it last and trying to continue on with the idea that it would then become sustainable. And 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 other people saw that. And, and um, I was, you know, 
I go, there are people that call up that go, I need to speak to the head of the HRP department or have your legal department call me. And I'm kind of going, it's just me. <laughs> I don't know, don't know what any of these things are. But I mean, I've learned and now I've hired and, you know, I've had this staff up because it's, it's, it is, the answer is, Yes, I really was. It's to me in, in nonprofit. It, it it is. Well, one thing I was told about in the music business is that the, the record business has just gone completely crazy because it's just fallen off the table more right. than once. There's not so any idea that anybody has of a way to do things, it's going to be considered. And then I, there's a list. I mean, I won't name drop, but there are legitimate even legitimate, excuse me, artists that I know, um, that I like, have called up looking, going, you know, they express curiosity because nobody wants to have a record deal. Nobody wants to deal with a record company anymore. I can keep everything and I don't have to do anything. Great. I don't care what if that, you know, who wouldn't want that deal? So. Well, I would imagine in some cases, the artists would wind up making way more money through your deal because you're paying them cash and also you're giving them X number of CDs that they can sell for whatever price or they get to keep all of it. Um, I mean, that could be a significant amount if you sold all the copies that you give them. We typically, right. we do not, yes, we don't pay the artist. We don't pay the artist money, right? Oh, There's no advance. Sorry. So the, um, if they're a royalty sharing person involved in it, the manu they don't get a royalty, but they certainly get paid. You know, I can tell you there have been artists that have gone on and gotten real record deals where they go after a period of time, they go, we're not going to push that record so much as the one we made with you because we make more money from the record that we made with you. I mean, uh, I think 13, 10 to 13, 14 dollars is what record companies sell CDs. Right. You know, Bruce Iglar, I have to say early on was significant in in being and Chris uh, Strackwitz. And Mike Kappas too. Very, Mike Kappas was, all of them were extremely helpful. And Steve Swan, he, these, these people all was kind of known in the business. They all said to keep going. And that, you know, um, in the case of Bruce, he really felt like there was a room for this within, you know, within the overall scheme of things. There are plenty of people out there that are deserving of record deals, but they're not people that are going to make anybody money. And if he said to me, I know what he was thinking of, he said, my artists, he goes, when, Gene goes, Jim, when was the last time you saw a record store? And I go, I don't know. There are no, he goes, that's right. There are none. He goes, my record stores are my artists. And if they're not playing on the road, playing 120 dates a year, I don't want to sign him. I don't care. He goes, I love Wee Willie Walker. I'm not going to sign him because he's not going to do 120 dates. That's kind of cold-blooded, but that's the reality of, of yeah. you know. And he's going to survive and with his staff as well. Right. No, there's, it's, it, that's the, the, what he, and we don't have, I mean, it may be that we're, we're growing to the point where I'm faced with similar kinds of things, but I don't know. Um, so far, it and the pandemic. Somebody can explain to me. I think giving during the pandemic really. Um, I think that may be what it is because we've grown in the two or three years. Have grown. It goes. I wouldn't say it's twice, but it probably there is a year in there where it was twice. Certainly. How do you measure success? I mean, I know it's by each project, but like what is the measurement of success from your point of view? It's a great question and it's hard for me to define um, because there's more than one answer to it. Um, I'll give you one example. There's lots of them, but there was, I, I got the Waterfront Blues Festival in Portland, four days, 40,000 people a day. I got them to hire Mariachi Mestizo, teenage Mariachi from Bakersfield. And they agreed to it and we read the price and everything. And there was like 16 of them and they had to get up. It was 22 actually that year. They had to get up there and play. And, you know, at some point they go, the waterfront goes, you're going to have to think of 
some kind of blues that they can, this is a blues festival. They got to play some blues. So I go, okay. So I, I said, well, I played for the mariachi. I played two steps from the blues by Bobby Bland. I go, would you be interested in doing this? And they go, Oh yeah, it sounds like a mariachi song. (laughs) And they learned it. And, and uh, Curtis sang it, Curtis Salgado sang it. And it was great. It's actually on YouTube. It's really spectacular. And the cool thing is, and I was actually at a, on a panel with Steve Van Zandt at, uh, at the IBC. And, and I, I said, the cool thing about it is there's 50 kids walking around Bakersfield right now that have got Bobby Bland on their phones. <laughs> <laughs> that's but, success. <laughs> that's success. Well, certainly, you know, if people, if they're, Lives become incrementally better financially. I mean, though, though, I think that one of the driving things to me about Little Village is that I don't think there's the, the, there's no longer the money in sales that they used to be. The real currency for Little Village is awareness. It drives the foundation and it drives the artist. If more people know who they are, there are more options. There are more ways for them to make money, and if more people know about Little Village, it, the more people will donate. So we look to, for the foundation. I look at. I mean, these days it really has changed to where social media is, and I don't know enough about it. But I look at, for people that are my age or you know over forty, even uh, New York Times, Wall Street Journal. Fresh Air, NPR is a huge outlet for music. If you have a certain amount of profile in those places that you get awareness from those outlets, you're doing well. And you can't, I I can't, I'm still trying to get, you know, I haven't gotten on Fresh Air yet. I'm not, not me, but a little village artist. But that's, that's the brass ring. I mean, it's pretty amazing that, you know, since four years ago, I don't know how many releases you have, but it's the number is pretty high, and and it's all over the map. And I I don't think genre matters to you, but I wonder. I mean, I know that some of your recordings have gotten nominations in the Blues Music Awards. That would you initially? I think the idea was to give profile or give opportunities to people who might not necessarily get signed to other labels. I'm not sure if that's still the case. And I wonder if you would do a second album with these people, with any of these people. I have. Yeah, we have. Um, um, given the circumstances, when it seems to be beneficial, you know, I, I get thanked all the time for doing it. And I go, man, this is really, you know, it's, it, it, I'm looking at it as a, as a business. I'm not being benevolent. It's, when it's to an advantage to Little Village to record somebody twice, like Aki Kumar, Aki Kumar is a tremendous spokesman for Little Village. He actually, when I started Little Village, I wanted him to be the executive director, and I still want him to be the executive director. Um, and I'll tell you something else, Marco, that one of the things that's really important to me about Little Village is that I think like blues music, I think most of the people, I think there's an audience out there for blues music. I don't think it's dwindling. I don't. I think that there's an audience of people out there for blues music, except everybody's trying to sell the same records to the same people. Now, if you look mm-hmm. at like Newport in 1960, which I've read about it in books, I'm not exactly old enough <laughs> to remember. But <laughs> I may look at it, but I'm about. not. But, um, you know, there was this exposure of Muddy Waters to an audience of people who up until then really didn't know who he was. And then that opened up the whole thing. And I think that it's the same thing, but you have to have certain blues, unfortunately has become guitar centric and it's become more music centric than, than lyric. Um, and I think it, once it goes back to, into being more like songs and less about somebody taking a guitar solo for 15 minutes, I think that it, it will return to the singer songwriter genre that it should be and then i think the audience will be much bigger so what little village has had the experience of is that people that like someone like maurice tanney that are singer songwriters will also like aki kumar and 
people from the subcontinent, frankly, who like Aki Kumar will like John Blue's Board or Willie Walker, because it starts to then cross pollinate. And people's, it's a matter of having an appropriate taste somehow to draw people from one thing to another and it being acceptable. That's the idea. So you have five releases coming out, which is an insane amount of releases. And they're all coming out Friday, is that? Yeah, and then there's reasons for that. I know, I've been told over and over again that it's insane, but it, it is... <laughs> It is a way of demonstrating completely the diversity of the label and the importance of diversity. Can you tell me about the five releases? As a matter of fact, I can't. There is Diana Greenleaf. Are you familiar with her? She's yeah, yeah. From, uh, she hasn't done a record in 11 years, and um, we did a record with her at Greaseland with Kid Producing. There is Rome Yamalov and Henry Kaiser. Are you familiar with Henry Kaiser? No, you can Google him. He's an avant-garde, crazy guitar player. It's like Sonny Chirac. And Rome is a 25-year-old. He's a Russian fellow, and he uh, uh, is the equivalent of Sonny Chirac at 25. There's Marina Krauss, who's done a previous record with Little Village. Um, But in this case, she's a Spanish professor, and it's a fascinating story. Um, and I won't go into the whole thing, but she has done a record that's uh, all in Spanish and a dedication to Edie Gourmet. Um, and uh, it, uh, it, she, in her own way, is dealing with the whole idea of what it is to grow up as a Latino in the United States, the language, how you speak it. There's an amazing sensitivity to it um, among Latinos, you know, uh, mestizo and the like and and it's 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 and it happens to be her uh, it's made up of her uh, life's calling and her research and the work that she does as a professor Um, there's a a sacred steel guy a guy who plays pedal steel named Deshaun Hickman he's coming out from Charlotte North Carolina and he did a record produced by Charlie Hunter are you familiar with the a uh, guitar player that played among with other people, Digital Planets and um, D'Angelo. That's what I'm trying to think of. He did a record with D'Angelo. And uh, uh, and then there's a record with Mike Sherman, who's a fabulous songwriter. Um, so we have this sort of wide variety. Um, it is kind of blues-centric, except for Marina. Uh, Deshaun is, is, um, is more sort of... Uh, quartet not quartet they're uh, spirituals they're you know um so anyway that's if i start talking about one of them i get sidetracked but uh (laughs) but when you're releasing five albums most of them are quite different maybe diana and mike Shermer has some crossover i mean they're both somewhat bass blues based but not necessarily completely blues but the others aren't you're not just sending it to blues magazines. You got to send it to various oh, yeah. different. <laughs> right. Well, the thing is, is that the appeal is see nothing against blues magazines, but the only people really, and I did it for forever. The only people who read them are the people that have their names in them. I mean, they, they have no, there is no relevance there. I mean, the percentage of it, the idea is to get this in front of different people blues music too so the idea of having all these releases with all this diversity is that somebody somewhere at cnn somewhere i mean you know i'm showing you the nuts and bolts but really that it'll have an appeal to people besides the people within that genre um you know certainly uh, marina Krauss. it's going to be really interesting because what you would consider to be a latino based crowd of people they wouldn't necessarily like this record to Sean Hickman, it's been in my experience with African Americans that when you give it a secular representation of a religious, you know, of a Christian music, they don't, they reject it. They only want to hear it in church. They don't. They almost always see it as being a Roman Henry. That's head. That's going to be big. We we I use the publicists from the Grateful Dead because real music in real time. And I'm not a dead, you know, it's over my head, but. <laughs> real music in real time is is a big f- feature with those people and you know so a lot of this is done will do well with those people and then we have other we've got um 
uh, we have a record coming out actually with Curtis. You mentioned Curtis Salgado. We have a record coming out in July with Curtis Salgado. That's uh, um, with the uh, uh, the Phantom Blues Band, which Mike oh. Finnegan was a member of. Yeah, yeah. So it takes two people to replace Mike. I'm playing organ, and and Curtis is singing, and actually. Bonnie Raitt's on it too, and there's some guest stars, and it's sort of a tribute to um, uh, to Mike. And the interesting thing is, is that Mike went to the University of Kansas. He's a hero in Kansas, and there in Salina, there at Kansas, there is a music, there's a performing arts center that has a music school named after Mike, Mike Finnegan wow. School of Music, and it's a community music school, and all the proceeds are going to pay for a scholarship program for kids to go there. So that's the kind of thing we like. So how do you decide on which artists to record? I have no idea. Are you, is it, do people send you unsolicited material? I mean, I, I presume by now people know about you and people come to you and say, hey, I know this person and I know you're out there looking for things. But if, if your criteria is music that other people might not be signing and that's good that could be a lot of people are you getting bombarded no but i, I not not yet and i and i actually think uh, i made it pretty I'm, I'm not quite sure why um well part of the thing is i have to say i you know when i started little village foundation i was i fought with the two other guys that were on the board that time now there's 15 but back then there was only two people on the board and well, I was 12, no, uh, 13. And, um, but I fought with them about using the word foundation. And the thing is, honestly, for someone like Chris Kane that we did a record with, he doesn't want a handout. Nobody wants a handout. Right. And so I think part of it, people kind of look like they sort of stay away because they think it's something else. And it is, it's not a real record company in the traditional sense. Um, so, and I tell people that call up, I go, you know, if I like it, I might say, um, not now. <laughs> <laughs> not yes, not no, not now. <laughs> um, but has the criteria changed greatly? Well, it, it, yes. I mean, and, and, and not in the way that you mean it, mean it necessarily. Because it, it, to me, it's never been about the brightest and the best. I mean, if it was a matter of just people being really good at what they're doing, if it was just that, I would sit in the lobby at Juilliard and hand out $100 bills. You know, um, it, there is a sort of a story that goes along with it. Um, and more and more... It is, a, I, I, if there are ways we can help people, certainly doing a record and giving all the proceeds to gun control like we did with Raise Your Voice or with this Mike Finnegan record, that wasn't something that, so we were sort of expanding it. We did a, we did a, uh, uh, we've done a couple of spoken word records, one, uh, a couple of uh, different ones. And we did one with Betty Reed Soskin, who's this 103 year old, woman who just retired as the oldest park ranger in America. She uh, African-American woman who worked at the Rosie Riveter Museum uh, in the shipyards in Richmond. Um, it's a fascinating story that I won't bore you with now. But the, I think we, it's actually on the news, was it not? Yeah, yeah. She's been covered everywhere. She's, it's, it's, yeah. It's, a, it's a fascinating story. Um, she's been you know, honored everywhere. Um, I mean, she knew her great-grandmother was a slave uh, and lived till like 19, 1935. So she knew her very well. It's amazing how you know somebody that knows somebody that knew Henry VIII. I mean, it's really like that. But in the case of slavery, it, it's a, a terrifying, horrific story. Um, so we've expanded that way. I mean, we're always looking to you know, I, I I think that that the public, in terms of trying to get somebody's interest, you can't just appeal to one thing the same way twice, right? You have to continuously. I'm not asking the artist to change, but I'm asking that the way we look at things is going to turn over, and it's always going to keep uh, 
you know, changing. And part of that is, I'll tell you, uh, for 15 records that I did with Robert Cray, there's only so many ideas that I have about how to play a minor blues. And so, you know, if you don't like, you know, change the record. So we're, you know, we're doing that. I mean, I think we're probably going to do another record with Aki. We're doing, there are people that we repeat. But, you know, the cost of these things is, like I say, is relatively low. I am always looking for, and the people in your audience, I, I, I say that I say no to people a lot, but I don't actually. And, and I'm, I'm looking all the time, you know, ear to the ground to, to find things. So if, if, not to use Bruce Siglar as the example, but if his, one of his criteria was for the artist to play 120 gigs, what is one of your criteria for people to consider submitting something to you? Not only should they be musical and hopefully somewhat good, but is there anything else you look there for? There has to be some kind of a compelling story. And they may not be the judge of it. A lot of people, everybody has got a story. It's just that not everybody knows that they do. And they don't know what part of their lives is sort of leads them to do, to do music or to lead. You know, there each one of these artists, it, there is something to it. All the way back to Wee Willie Walker, to the, the Mixtec tribe of, of indigenous people from Mexico that I record. There's they don't speak English, they don't speak Spanish. Somewhere there's something. There's a hook, because to just be a great blues band, nobody cares. I don't. You know, I mean, but whether you know, they gig or not, does that matter to you? Well, it, it, it would be nice if if that aspect of it grew. Now, if the, when you say gig, do you mean playing at the corner bar? Uh, that doesn't really necessarily mean anything. I have taken blues artists from and had them play at Hardly Strictly Bluegrass, which is with Emmy Lou Harris and. You know, all this sort of Americana artists, I'm trying to cross them over into that audience. It's the same way that people did at Newport in 1960. Um, so, you know, I, I want the artists to do, I think that people, one of the criteria that I have is if you want to become a big deal, this is not the place to go. Because I don't know how to make anybody a big deal. I'm 68 years old. I mean, being a big deal. Uh, name me an artist that became a big deal past the age of 30. Right. Silence. Crickets. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so what, how has this changed your life? Oh, uh, you as yourself, uh, as a uh, musician? I mean, I, I would love to think that I should have started 10 years ago. Um, because I, I, I'm having the time of my life. I mean, it's fun. It's really fun. There, there is meaningful things that happen, small things that happen that are really meaningful to me that not to happen to me, but to happen to others. I've created, you know, I have helped, you know, this nonprofit thing, we're all in it together, but it, it really early on, someone told me that the nonprofit experience, it just unfolds and it keeps unfolding and keeps unfolding like a flower. And it just, and there is um, countless ways and the connectivity of it and the joy and meaningful change that it brings to people's lives is, and not just the musicians, but also the people that come and hear it. Um, you know, it, it, I am really, really grateful, and and uh, um, I, I'm from Chicago originally. I wish that um, I could learn, uh, uh, you know, that it was in my genes to learn how to uh, embezzle. But <laughs> I mean, <laughs> because it's really doing well. But I mean, it does. That's not really it doesn't affect the bottom line of what I get paid necessarily. But there is this really. Um, joy to it that uh, it's hard to express it's um and so it's been boring. seven years now i guess so you started around 2015 yeah that was the first year do you know uh, was there was there a moment in time when you thought yeah i made the right decision this is what i had imagined or this is exactly where i want to be that is a roller coaster there are there are 
you know, peaks and valleys in this where I, I get up and I go, what have I done? The whole world is laughing. You're a nut. You should have, this is crazy. And then there are other times. It reminds me of when I used to go to Europe. The first few times I went to Europe that I compared it to, there would be, you know, you walk around Paris and you go, this is the greatest thing I've ever done in my life. This is fantastic. And then, you know, a few hours later, jet lag sets in and you go, what the fuck am I doing here? I got to go home. This is horrible. You are out of your mind to come here. Fuck all these people. They're all crazy. I hate them. You know, it's like, so you go through this thing of where, you know, and it's kind of like the musical process. It's like creativity. You go, this is great. This is the greatest thing I've ever written. This is horrible. You know, and it, it, it is that way. So, yeah, it happens a lot. But, but, you know, the thing, I think one thing is in terms of creativity that's really fun about this is I think for a long time um, in my musical career, I was caught up with the idea of people liking it or people making or success or being slightly in competition with others. And I don't feel the nonprofit business, I think, in a way is that I really don't feel in com- I've run into people with nonprofits that do feel that they're in competition with me. But I myself, compared to you know, the real days of trying to get a record deal and stuff like that and the stuff people did, uh, this is it, I'm glad to be in a non-competitive environment. I function much better in that. My final question is, do you see some like does this continue the way it is or do you see it changing do you have goals do you have other things you're reaching for that you might not have had when you first started because of what you've accomplished so far yeah i'm asked that a lot i mean it it, it is there is uh, but in terms of personal goals i mean not personal goals but goals for a little village i i'd like to um create and 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 it needs to be funded and it's a much bigger organization, but fund some kind of a touring um, uh, example of six to eight acts like this that would play in performing arts centers. Um, I suppose ultimately some form of a Broadway show. Because I think the thing is, you know, and somebody said this, I didn't have the gumption to come up with it my own, but the real little village has sort of become you know, it's it's what it's what America, United States and Canada, it's what we sound like, it's what we look like, it's who we really are. There's a lot of music and what's commercial. Commercialism just fogs up everything. We're only seeing and hearing what's being shown to us. And it sounds like a conspiracy thing, but it's kind of, tr- it's true. You know? There's a lot of great stuff out there. And stories to and stories and music to hear and see and people to meet that would really, I mean, without being schmaltzy about it, there's a lot to feel good about, a lot to feel bad about, but there's, 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 it's not all bad. It's, it's real good. So I think that there'd be a, a need for it um, in a market. Well, I've heard some of your albums, and I, I totally agree that there's some great music out there, and I'm looking forward to the Mighty Mike Scherzer album coming yeah. up. And um, thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate you taking this time. Thank you for talking to me.